Mark 12, verse 18 through 27. We're continuing here with uh, Jesus in the midst of a, a barrage of challenges to him. Um, members of the Jewish, Jewish leadership trying to trap him or humiliate him or somehow um, destroy him in their, in their own words. So Mark 12, beginning in verse uh, 18. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. The third likewise, and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. We'll end our reading there for this morning. Well, as you know, our, our church has, as, as many churches do and have, a, a confession of faith, which is simply our summary of, of what we believe, uh, the Bible to teach, how we understand life and, and God's world. Everyone lives by some kind of creed or confession, whether it's written down or not. Secularists uh, have their own confessions, sometimes written. One of the best examples of those would be the, the Humanist Manifesto, which has been around for uh, more than 100 years now and signed by many influential people in, in history. Uh, the father, father of, of modern public education, John Dewey, was an early signer of it, um, modern Atheist uh, Richard Dawkins is a signer of it. Many Nobel laureates uh, have signed the Humanist Manifesto. And it has a confession on the doctrine of the resurrection uh, as well. Here's just one line from it. It says, The total personality of a human is a function of the biological organism. There is no evidence that life survives the death of the body. Uh, in other words, life after death is, for many of our Neighbors and colleagues and friends and so on, uh, a, a silly notion. Um, and life should be understood and shaped by rejecting that kind of a, a silly idea. Well, there were those in Jesus' day who thought the same about the resurrection. They weren't, uh, they weren't secularists. They were quite uh, religious uh, people. Uh, but they denied the resurrection on this occasion, tried to use that idea to ridicule uh, Jesus uh, as well. Ever since the, the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, just in the same week in what we're studying here in Mark, um, various Jewish leaders have been trying to destroy Jesus back in uh, cha last chapter, verse 18, been trying to trap him. Um, virtually everyone from the Jewish leadership has been represented. The, the chief priests and the scribes came and challenged Jesus on authority. <coughs> Uh, as we saw a few weeks ago, and then the Pharisees and Herodians last week came with a question about taxes and the relation to, to civil government, and we considered that last week, and now the Sadducees use this issue of 
the resurrection. And we'll see uh, next week, um, after the last question, a remarkable conclusion to this whole section, verse 34, that after that, no one would venture, no one would dare to ask him any more questions uh, because of his, his answers. Um, so let's look at this challenge from the Sadducees this morning, looking at number one on your outline there. First, who, who are the Sadducees? Well, going back to the, uh, the Maccabean revolt, maybe some of you know something about that, when the Maccabees helped to save uh, the Jews. This is what uh, Hanukkah celebrates. Um, it's part of the history of the church, really, how God preserved his church um, but going back to that time, there were two main religious sects. Uh, we might think of them as sort of roughly parallel to denominations within the, the Jewish religion, um, within true religion. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that came out of that and, and survived. Uh, many of the Sadducees were priests. Uh, some of them were, were not. Some of them were lay people. But most of them were also wealthy. So it was a very wealthy, influential uh, group of people generally. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body there in Jerusalem at the temple, uh, had 71 seats, um, uh, 71 seats of authority, and the Sanhedrin had the majority uh, of those, the, the Sadducees had the majority uh, of those seats. Uh, there's obviously a lot of overlap between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both uh, faithful um, Jews faithful to the temple and, and to the religion uh, of, of God's word in the Old Testament there in some sense, but they're very distinct as well. The, the Sadducees were distinct from the Pharisees in that they uh, rejected the whole oral tradition. So we've talked about the oral tradition uh, before, which is the, the Pharisees particularly held to that. All of these traditions and rules that were passed down from generation to generation um, Jesus has clashed with the Pharisees over some of those traditions uh, on the, on, about the Sabbath, for example. Well, the Sadducees didn't, didn't hold to any of that. Um, the Sadducees also had a different view of God's word. Uh, they didn't totally reject the prophets and the Psalms and, and the history books in the Old Testament, uh, but they only held the Torah as authoritative, the, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. That was really their authoritative Bible. So that was a very big difference as well, and then somewhat related to that, and to this passage here, the Sadducees also rejected the idea of resurrection, uh, of a life after death. Uh, death was was it for the Sadducees and their understanding. And so they bring a, G, a question to Jesus related to this, and they set it up with this uh, provision from Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, verse 19. Say Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving behind a wife and no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. This this practice, this provision from Deuteronomy has been called generally leveret marriage, uh, leveret marriage, and it's it's this provision again where if a woman is widowed and she has no children, particularly no son, then one of her brothers-in-law, her her late husband's brothers. Uh, was to have a son with her, uh, if possible. It, it seems to be expected whether this, this brother-in-law was already married yet or not. And so it uh, seems like a very strange practice to us. Maybe like immorally strange, perhaps. Uh, is, is God um, condoning bigamy uh, in, in Deuteronomy through this? Well, the short answer to that is, 
is no, even though it is a very strange and difficult uh, practice to understand. God's pattern from the beginning had been one man, one woman, Adam and Eve. Um, and even though there are some perversions of that in the Old Testament, some, some prominent examples that, that didn't go well, that's very clearly affirmed in the New Testament again, um, that pattern of one man and one woman. Uh, Leveret marriage from Deuteronomy 25 is a very narrow provision uh, within the nation of Israel uh, for very specific circumstances and, and reasons. And, and here, uh, that, that, so that, that's part of the reason it, it doesn't apply to us. It's not something we're, um, uh, we're living out or, or following in, in the New Testament church. But here, here's a couple of those reasons. One is in the context in which God provided for the nation of Israel, the, the promised land, and provided... Uh, particular divisions of that land for certain families. So every family had this great piece of land that was passed down from generation to generation and kept in that family, in the family name. And so uh, a widow who had no sons to carry on the family name and to maintain uh, possession of the land, uh, this this was a provision uh, for that, that, that her family could be uh, perpetuated and, and the land could be kept in that family. Uh, a second, maybe even more significant reason, maybe one we can relate to even more, is in a society in the ancient world with no none of the social safety nets that we know in our society, there are no social security or Medicare or nursing homes or, or, or all sorts of things, um, and, and a subsistence society as well, where people were, were basically dirt poor uh, by our standards and, and scraping by uh, and growing what they needed to survive every year. Uh, in that society, sons and their families particularly would care for their parents, uh, especially in their old age. And so uh, a widow without sons, without children, uh, would be liable to be utterly destitute, especially in her old age. Um, and so there's this provision for these reasons that a brother could take her as wife, but what the, the son that would result would essentially be the original, the late brother's son, would carry on that name, that family, uh, and would be able to care for his mother. Okay. So anyway, that, that doesn't answer maybe all of our questions or um, wonderings about that, uh, that part of Deuteronomy. But this is how uh, the, the Sadducees come up with this scenario where seven brothers ended up marrying one, one woman okay, um, in succession. Obviously a very a highly unlikely scenario to actually play out like that, um, but this is the practice that it's built on. And they create this scenario so that they can challenge Jesus in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. You know, how, is, how is she going to choose? What, 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 um, what will it be like in the resurrection? They could have asked that question, of course, with just one remarriage, right, with, with two brothers and one wife. Um, but they're making an extreme example to make the resurrection look especially ridiculous, right, and make Jesus look ridiculous. That, that type, of, type of argument rhetoricians would call a reductio ad absurdum, right? Sounds like a Harry Potter spell, but it just means to reduce something to absurdity, right? And we, we do this sometimes in everyday life uh, as well. Your, your kid comes to you and tells you something he wants to do and you object and his argument is, well, all my friends are doing it. And you respond, 
Well, if all your friends are going to jump off a bridge or drink gasoline or something, would, would you do that? Right? That's a reductio ad absurdum argument. Okay? So that's what they bring to Jesus. Before we look at Jesus' response, uh, just note that this is not a, they're not a bringing a technical debate over some theological minutia. This is not a uh, angels on the head of a pin kind of a question. And, and part of that is they're, they're not asking about marriage. Um, it relates, Jesus' answer relates to marriage. We'll talk about marriage a little bit this morning, but um, they're asking about the resurrection. Uh, that's, that's what they're asking about. It, so it, it, it strikes at the center of, of truth um, and of true faith. The, the climax of all the Gospels is the death and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the hope of the Bible is, is in resurrection. Um, it's, it's central to the truth of Christian religion. Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, is if, if Christ is not raised, if there is no resurrection, all of the rest of our faith is, is worthless and meaningless. Uh, we're, we're to be pitied. Uh, this, is, this is central um, for God's people, not just after the resurrection of Jesus too, but, but God's people in every age. Um, in the Old Testament as well. If there was no resurrection, no hope of resurrection, then there was no hope after death. There was no final judgment. There would be no difference between God's people, um, no visible lasting difference between them and, and anyone else of any other religion who believed or did anything uh, at all. So th- this is how significant this, this issue is uh, being brought to Jesus. Secondly, let's look at Jesus' response. Uh, in, in two parts. Uh, so Jesus clearly responds that the resurrection is, is a reality. Uh, in the first half of his response, verse 24, this is, uh, is this not the reason you're mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I'm going to summarize part of what Jesus is saying here, as you see in, in letter A there. The resurrection is reality because eternal life is different from life now. Uh, not, not entirely, maybe not even largely, but crucially and, and significantly. Um, again, I, I've said this before, but this is, I think, sort of the opposite correction that um, much of American Christianity needs. In other words, eternity is not presented in the Bible as some... Uh, ethereal reality beyond the clouds. We're, we're floating up there forever. Um, we will be here on earth with Jesus when Jesus returns. That, that's our hope um, in our bodies, um, raised from the dead. But the Sadducees seem to have assumed in their caricature of this doctrine that they reject that everything would be sort of the same. And so verse 25, uh, Jesus affirms that life will be different, specifically that there won't be marriage. It won't include marriage. Uh, Why would it not include marriage? In in Luke's account, Luke's parallel account, in this this interaction here, uh, he he has a little bit uh, fuller response from Jesus where he says, for they cannot die anymore because they are like angels. Uh, so the point of the comparison, we are like angels in, in, in eternity, is that we're not we're not dying we we're uh, eternal um, not facing death anymore we we don't become angels despite um, 
that view that's that's out there in pop culture a lot. That's that's not the teaching of the scriptures. We do not cease to be human uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll, we'll be fully restored as humans, as God created us, uh, really. Uh, but this this also points to a key purpose for marriage. Uh, there won't be marriage because they won't die anymore. Jesus says marriage is is uh, in one purpose for procreation, and and that won't be necessary. Uh, anymore. So because there's not death, because there's not sin uh, in eternity, some things will be dramatically different. I think a lot of things will be um, uh, similar, will be, will be parallel in a lot of ways. I, I expect that we will still be working and producing and creating uh, as, as we were created to be. That's part of being human. It's part of reflecting the image of God. And yet think of all the professions, all the institutions that will not be necessary uh, in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, they'll be entirely unnecessary. And Jesus affirms that among those uh, is marriage. And secondly, uh, more significantly, Jesus affirms the resurrection is reality because God is a covenant God. Or again in verse 24, as he says, you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. Now, recognize that that's quite a challenge to put to the uh, the, the Sadducees, in fact, it's, it's almost certainly a great offense to them, right? The, the scriptures and the power of God is, is their wheelhouse, right? That's what they're all about. It would be like saying to all you mothers, you know nothing about raising children, or to Tom, you know nothing about painting, or, or all uh, things like that, right? Jesus says there are things that they have dramatically and consequentially missed. Uh, and so he turns to the scriptures, uh, to show them. And, and Jesus could have turned to uh, Psalm 16 that we sang earlier. He could have turned to uh, Daniel chapter 12, these passages that clearly speak of an, an expectation uh, of resurrection. Uh, but he accommodates the Sadducees who, remember, uh, only hold to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, as authoritative. And so he, he accommodates them and goes to Exodus 25, there in verse 26, uh, where he says, have you not read in the book of Moses uh, how God spoke to him, saying, "I am the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac, and the, uh, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." Um, God did not say, in other words, "I was the God of Abraham." He's speaking to Moses long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, "I was their God." I am their God, right? Still, uh, ongoingly, uh, He's a covenant God. His covenant is not temporary. Uh, it, it doesn't uh, die out with, with human death. And, and God is not just saying something about himself, but also something about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He ha they have him as their God. He is their God still. And God would not still in any meaningful sense be their God if, if they just didn't exist anymore. And that, so this passage implies the resurrection. For God's covenant promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to uh, be their God forever, for that to be true, there must be life after death. There must be resurrection, ultimately. And so Jesus concludes, verse 27, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. God is, God is powerful and faithful to be their God still, to, to carry out His promises. And so Jesus accuses them of not really knowing the covenant God and, and the Scriptures and this has erroneously shaped the Sadducees' 
view of life and their view of the future, their view of religion. And that's a reminder to you that what you understand about God and his word uh, shapes your entire world and life view. Uh, there's, there's nothing in your life or nothing in your thinking that's, that's exempt from that, that reality. Uh, the Sadducees were wrong, and uh, not just because they failed to see how see the implications of Exodus 25 that Jesus quotes, for example, but but the whole Old Testament um, is clear in its hope. It, it's certainly true the New Testament resurrection in the New Testament is more prominent, it's clearer, uh, but it was clear in the Old Testament too. And I, I want to just give a few examples of that that we would be clear about that. Uh, so Job 19 <clears throat> verse 26. Uh, a pretty well-known passage from Job where he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, after I die, Job says, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job anticipates seeing God in the flesh uh, after he dies on earth one day. Uh, Psalm 16, Psalm 23, other psalms speak of being with God, enjoying God forever. Uh, clear hope of life after death. Isaiah 26, 19, God says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Uh, that's about as clear as it should, could be. And, and uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, is also uh, very clear in its hope. It says, and those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Uh, so the Old Testament is clear in its, in its hope as well. Well, thirdly, I, I want to address uh, just on a sort of emotional and practical level the, the idea that Jesus teaches that there is no marriage in eternal life uh, in in the new heavens and a new earth. There is, there is some debate. Some, some are not sure that that's exactly what Jesus means here, but, but I, I, generally it's, it's accepted, and I think it's pretty clear that that is what Jesus is, is saying here. But I just, I just want to touch on that again because it's, I think it's difficult for us to imagine. It's difficult for me to imagine, for those of us who are married or who have been married. Um, it seems very, very unnatural. And sad, perhaps, to, to think of eternal life in that way. Um, it's natural, I think, to expect and to hope that the, the deep covenant relationship that you have in this life would, would continue as a blessing in, in the next life. Um, there are a lot of questions people have about eternal life, uh, many that we can't answer. Some of those are, are weightier questions. Uh, you know, what will we be doing in the new creation? Uh, what will our bodies be like? What will our relationships be like? Uh, we can speak biblically, intelligently, you know, maybe to some degree, generally about those things, but we can't really answer those questions. There are less weighty things we might wonder. Uh, you know, will there be skiing and Chick-fil-A? I mean, some of these questions come to my mind. But we have this question of marriage that Jesus does seem to answer clearly. But it might be hard to hard answer to ex accept or to understand fully. Uh, but whatever our questions, whatever the answers, whatever our longings, we ought to be absolutely certain that 
eternal life with Christ will be perfect. It will be totally satisfying. Right? It, won't, it won't leave us feeling like there's something lacking. Or that God should have designed it a little bit differently or something's out of place. We won't be able to suggest to God any improvements. Uh, it will be fully satisfying and, and joy. I, I think ultimately you and I will realize how little we loved our spouses in this life compared to how we love them then, uh, even without marriage. Uh, this also points to the fact that your marriage is not ultimate. Uh, your marriage is not ultimate. It's it's foundational. It's designed to be wonderful and fulfilling, but it's temporary. It, it's not the ultimate goal of, of your life. Uh, again, I'm going to quote from Luke's parallel account here. Uh, he, he adds a phrase on the end of, of Jesus' conclusion. In Luke 20, He is not the God of the dead, Jesus says, but of the living, for all live to Him. All live to Him. And I, I just remind you this morning that you all are engaged to a greater marriage. Right, to a, a more permanent, more satisfying, uh, more glorious marriage to King Jesus, the bridegroom of the church. Um, and marriage itself is in fact intended as a picture of that, as a pointer to that, uh, ultimately. And, and also, if you think about it, this is a profoundly dear and encouraging truth for singles or for those who uh, exist in or have gone through a broken marriage. Right? That they are at no disadvantage in the kingdom of God, uh, but are included in the marriage supper of the Lamb at that last great day. That is what we're all living to uh, and toward, uh, to be fully satisfied with Christ to forever. So put this all together with me. So Jesus answers the Sadducees. They don't know the covenant God and his power. Uh, they don't understand the clear teaching of Scripture we don't know how they responded to that. Some of them may have may have found that convincing or may, may not have found that convincing at all. But Jesus' ultimate answer to questions about the resurrection to the Sadducees was not in what he said here, but was several days later in the empty tomb, right? And his raising from the dead. Um, and, and they will, and you and I will, uh, reckon with a risen and a returning Lord uh, one day. Uh, and while we may find it hard to imagine life after that without marriage, uh, the blessing of marriage, we, we look forward to that life because we're living to God. Uh, that's, that's our ultimate purpose. Our lives, our existence, all of history is moving toward uh, that union with Christ that will be uh, visible and, and perfect uh, uh, one day. And that day, that, that last great day, as we say in our, our uh, membership vows here, uh, Revelation describes as a wedding, uh, the greatest wedding reception of all time. Uh, then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, like loud peers of peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb.
Let's close in prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for what we've just read of this great hope of uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. We look forward to that uh, great feast on that last great day that is also the great first day uh, of that uh, eternal and blessed marriage. Lord, we thank you for the reality uh, and hope of the resurrection that we remember uh, this day each week and uh, even particularly this time of year uh, each year. Uh, We pray that we would live in that reality um, today and this coming week. We pray in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.